From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne. Chapter 14, Pickaxe and Trowel. The same evening, Barbicane and his companions returned to Tampa Town, and Murchison, the engineer, re-embarked on board the Tampico for New Orleans. His object was to enlist an army of workmen and to collect together the greater part of the materials. The members of the gun club remained at Tampa Town for the purpose of setting on foot the preliminary works by the aid of the people of the country. Eight days after its departure, the Tampico returned into the Bay of Espiritu Santo with a whole flotilla of steamboats. Murchison had succeeded in assembling together 1,500 artisans. Attracted by the high pay and considerable bounties offered by the gun club, he had enlisted a choice legion of stokers, iron founders, lime burners, miners, brick makers, and artisans of every trade without distinction of color. As many of these people brought their families with them, their departure resembled a perfect emigration. On the 31st of October at 10 o'clock in the morning, the troop disembarked on the quays of Tampa Town and one may imagine the activity which pervaded that little town, whose population was thus doubled in a single day. During the first few days, they were busy discharging the cargo brought by the flotilla, the machines, and the rations, as well as a large number of huts constructed of iron plates, separately pieced and numbered. At the same period, Barbicane laid the first sleepers of a railway 15 miles in length, intended to unite Stones Hill with Tampa Town. On the 1st of November, Barbicane quitted Tampa Town with a detachment of workmen, and on the following day the whole town of huts was erected round Stones Hill. This they enclosed with palisades, and in respect of energy and activity, it might have been mistaken for one of the great cities of the Union. Everything was placed under a complete system of discipline, and the works were commenced in most perfect order. The nature of the soil having been carefully examined by means of repeated borings, the work of excavation was fixed for the 4th of November. On that day, Barbicane called together his foremen and addressed them as follows. You are well aware, my friends, of the object with which I have assembled you together in this wild part of Florida. Our business is to construct a cannon measuring nine feet in its interior diameter, six feet thick, and with a stone revetment of nineteen and a half feet in thickness. We have, therefore, a well of sixty feet in diameter to dig down to a depth of nine hundred feet. This great work must be completed within eight months, so that you have two million five hundred and forty-three thousand four hundred cubic feet of earth to excavate in two hundred fifty-five days. That's to say, in round numbers, 2,000 cubic feet per day. That, which would present no difficulty to a thousand navvies working in open country, will be, of course, more troublesome in a comparatively confined space. However, the thing must be done, and I reckon for its accomplishment upon your courage as much as upon your skill. At eight o'clock the next morning, the first stroke of the pickaxe was struck upon the soil of Florida, and from that moment, that prince of tools was never inactive for one moment in the hands of the excavators. The gangs relieved each other every three hours. On the 4th of November, 50 workmen commenced digging, 
in the very center of the enclosed space on the summit of Stones Hill, a circular hole sixty feet in diameter. The pickaxe first struck upon a kind of black earth, six inches in thickness, which was speedily disposed of. To this earth succeeded two feet of fine sand, which was carefully laid aside as being valuable for serving the casting of the inner mold. After the sand appeared some compact white clay, resembling the chalk of Great Britain, which extended down to a depth of four feet. Then the iron of the picks struck upon the hard bed of the soil, a kind of rock formed of petrified shells, very dry, very solid, and which the picks could with difficulty penetrate. At this point, the excavation exhibited a depth of six and a half feet, and the work of the masonry was begun. At the bottom of the excavation, they constructed a wheel of oak, a kind of circle strongly bolted together and of immense strength. The center of this wooden disc was hollowed out to a diameter equal to the exterior diameter of the Columbiad. Upon this wheel rested the first layers of the masonry, the stones of which were bound together by hydraulic cement with irresistible tenacity. The workmen, after laying the stones from the circumference to the center, were thus enclosed within a kind of well 21 feet in diameter. When this work was accomplished, the miners resumed their picks and cut away the rock from underneath the wheel itself, taking care to support it as they advanced upon blocks of great thickness. At every two feet, which the hole gained in depth, they successively withdrew the blocks. The wheel then sank little by little, and with it the massive ring of masonry on the upper bed of which the masons labored incessantly, always reserving some vent holes to permit the escape of gas during the operation of the casting. This kind of work required on the part of the workmen extreme nicety and minute attention. More than one, in digging underneath the wheel, was dangerously injured by the splinters of stone, but their ardor never relaxed night or day. By day they worked under the rays of the scorching sun, by night under the gleam of the electric light. The sounds of the picks against the rock, the bursting of mines, the grinding of the machines, the wreaths of smoke scattered through the air, traced around the stone's hill a circle of terror which the herds of buffalo and the war parties of the Seminoles never ventured to pass. Nevertheless, the works advance regularly as the steam cranes actively removed the rubbish. Of unexpected obstacles there was little account, and with regard to foreseen difficulties, they were speedily disposed of. At the expiration of the first month, the well had attained the depth assigned for that lapse of time, namely 112 feet. This depth was doubled in December and trebled in January. During the month of February, the workmen had to contend with a sheet of water which made its way right across the outer soil. It became necessary to employ very powerful pumps and compressed air engines to drain it off, so as to close up the orifice from whence it issued, just as one stops a leak on board a ship. They at last succeeded in getting the upper hand of these untoward streams. Only, in consequence of the loosening of the soil, the wheel partly gave way, and a slight partial settlement ensued. This accident cost the life of several workmen. No fresh occurrence thenceforward arrested the progress of the operation. 
and on the 10th of June, 20 days before the expiration of the period fixed by Barbicane, the well, lined throughout with its facing of stone, had attained the depth of 900 feet. At the bottom, the masonry rested upon a massive block measuring 30 feet in thickness, while on the upper portion it was level with the surrounding soil. President Barbicane and the members of the gun club warmly congratulated their engineer Murchison. The Cyclopean work had been accomplished with extraordinary rapidity. During these eight months, Barbicane never quitted Stones Hill for a single instant. Keeping ever close by the work of excavation, he busied himself incessantly with the welfare and health of his workpeople and was singularly fortunate in warding off the epidemics common to large communities of men, and so disastrous in those regions of the globe which are exposed to the influences of tropical climates. Many workmen, it is true, paid with their lives for the rashness inherent in these dangerous labors, but these mishaps are impossible to be avoided, and they're classed among the details with which the Americans trouble themselves but little. They have, in fact, more regard for human nature in general than for the individual in particular. Nevertheless, Barbicane professed opposite principles to these and put them in force at every opportunity. So thanks to his care, his intelligence, his useful intervention in all difficulties, his prodigious and humane sagacity, the average of accidents did not exceed that of transatlantic countries, noted for their excessive precautions. France, for instance, among others, where they reckon about one accident for every 200,000 francs of work. Chapter 15. The Fete of the Casting During the eight months which were employed in the work of excavation, the preparatory works of the casting had been carried on simultaneously with extreme rapidity. A stranger arriving at Stones Hill would have been surprised at the spectacle offered to his view. At 600 yards from the well, and circularly arranged around it as a central point, rose 1,200 reverberating ovens, each six feet in diameter, and separated from each other by an interval of three feet. The circumference occupied by these 1,200 ovens presented a length of two miles. Being all constructed on the same plane, each with its high quadrangular chimney, they produced a most singular effect. It will be remembered that on their third meeting, the committee had decided to use cast iron for the Columbiad, and in particular the white description. This metal, in fact, is the most tenacious, the most ductile, and the most malleable, and consequently suitable for all molding operations, and when smelted with pit coal, is of superior quality for all engineering works, requiring great resisting power, such as cannon, steam boilers, hydraulic presses, and the like. Cast iron, however, if subjected to only one single fusion, is rarely sufficiently homogeneous, and it requires a second fusion completely to refine it by dispossessing it of its last earthly deposits. So long before being forwarded to Tampa Town, the iron ore, molten in the great furnaces of Cold Spring, and brought into contact with coal and silicium, heated to a high temperature, was carburized and transformed into cast iron. After this first operation, the metal was sent on to Stones Hill. They had, however, to deal with 136 million pounds of iron, 
a quantity far too costly to send by railway. The cost of transport would have been double that of material. It appeared preferable to freight vessels at New York and to load them with the iron in bars. This, however, required not less than 68 vessels of 1,000 tons, a veritable fleet, which quitting New York on the 3rd of May, on the 10th of the same month, ascended the Bay of Espiritu Santo and discharged their cargoes without dues in the port at Tampa Town. Thence the iron was transported by rail to Stones Hill, and about the middle of January, this enormous mass of metal was delivered at its destination. It will easily be understood that 1,200 furnaces were not too many to melt simultaneously these 60,000 tons of iron. Each of these furnaces contained nearly 140,000 pounds weight of metal. They were all built after the model of those which served for the casting of the Rodman gun. They were trapezoidal in shape, with a high elliptical arch. These furnaces, constructed of fireproof brick, were especially adapted for burning pit coal with a flat bottom upon which the iron bars were laid. This bottom, inclined at an angle of 25 degrees, allowed the metal to flow into the receiving troughs, and the 1,200 converging trenches carried the molten metal down to the central well. The day following that on which the works of the masonry and boring had been completed, Barbicane set to work upon the central mold. His object now was to raise within the center of the well, and with a coincident axis, a cylinder 900 feet high and 9 feet in diameter, which should exactly fill up the space reserved for the bore of the Columbiad. This cylinder was composed of a mixture of clay and sand, with the addition of a little hay and straw. The space, left between the mold and the masonry, was intended to be filled up with the molten metal, which would thus form the walls six feet in thickness. This cylinder, in order to maintain its equilibrium, had to be bound by iron bands and firmly fixed at certain intervals by cross clamps fastened into the stone lining. After the castings, these would be buried in the block of metal, leaving no external projection. This operation was completed on the 8th of July, and the run of the metal was fixed for the following day. This fete of the casting will be a grand ceremony, said J.T. Maston to his friend Barbicane. Undoubtedly, said Barbicane, but it will not be a public fete. What? Will you not open the gates of the enclosure to all comers? I must be very careful, Maston. The casting of the Columbiad is an extremely delicate, not to say a dangerous, operation, and I should prefer its being done privately. At the discharge of the projectile, a fete, if you like. Till then, no. The president was right. The operation involved unforeseen dangers, which a great influx of spectators would have hindered him from averting. It was necessary to preserve complete freedom of movement. No one was admitted within the enclosure except a delegation of members of the gun club who had made the voyage to Tampa Town. Among these was the brisk Billsby, Tom Hunter, Colonel Blomsbury, Major Elphinstone, General Morgan, and the rest of the lot to whom the casting of the Columbiad was a matter of personal interest. J.T. Maston became their Cicerone. He omitted no point of detail. 
He conducted them throughout the magazines, workshops, through the midst of the engines, and compelled them to visit the whole 1,200 furnaces, one after the other. At the end of the 1,200th visit, they were pretty well knocked up. The casting was to take place at 12 o'clock precisely. The previous evening, each furnace had been charged with 114,000 pounds weight of metal, in bars disposed crossways to each other, so as to allow the hot air to circulate freely between them. At daybreak, the 1,200 chimneys vomited their torrents of flame into the air, and the ground was agitated with dull tremblings. As many pounds of metal as there were to cast, so many pounds of coal were there to burn. Thus, there were 68,000 tons of coal, which projected in the face of the sun a thick curtain of smoke. The heat soon became insupportable within the circle of furnaces, the rumbling of which resembled the rolling of thunder. The powerful ventilators added their continuous blasts and saturated with oxygen the glowing plates. The operation, to be successful, required to be conducted with great rapidity. On a signal given by a cannon shot, each furnace was to give vent to the molten iron and completely to empty itself. These arrangements made, foremen and workmen waited the preconcerted moment with an impatience mingled with a certain amount of emotion. Not a soul remained within the enclosure. Each superintendent took his post by the aperture of the run. Barbicane and his colleagues, perched on a neighboring eminence, assisted at the operation. In front of them was a piece of artillery ready to give fire on the signal from the engineer. Some minutes before midday, the first driblets of metal began to flow. The reservoirs filled little by little, and by the time that the whole melting was completely accomplished, it was kept in abeyance for a few minutes in order to facilitate the separation of foreign substances. Twelve o'clock struck. A gunshot suddenly peeled forth and shot its flame into the air. Twelve hundred melting troughs were simultaneously opened, and twelve hundred fiery serpents crept toward the central well, unrolling their incandescent curves. There, down they plunged with a terrific noise into a depth of nine hundred feet. It was an exciting and a magnificent spectacle. The ground trembled while these molten waves, launching into the sky their wreaths of smoke, evaporated the moisture of the mold and hurried it upward through the vent holes of the stone lining in the form of dense vapor clouds. These artificial clouds unrolled their thick spirals to a height of 1,000 yards into the air. A savage, wandering somewhere beyond the limits of the horizon, might have believed that some new crater was forming in the bosom of Florida, although there was neither any eruption, nor typhoon, nor storm, nor struggle of the elements, nor any of these terrible phenomena which nature is capable of producing. No, it was man alone who had produced these reddish vapors, these gigantic flames worthy of a volcano itself, these tremendous vibrations resembling the shock of an earthquake, these reverberations rivaling those of hurricanes and storms, and it was his hand, which precipitated into an abyss, dug by himself a whole Niagara of molten metal.